broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. The U.S. Navy has finally acknowledged that videos appearing to show UFOs flying through the air are real. They don't call them UFOs. They call them unidentified aerial phenomena. They, these, uh, the several videos they're talking about were recorded years ago by fighter pilots. Then in 2017, they were made public by the New York Times. This was extremely abrupt, like a ping pong ball bouncing off a wall. The ability to hover over the water and then start a vertical climb from basically zero up towards about 12,000 feet and then accelerate in less than two seconds and disappear is something I had never seen in my life. But it was run by a military intelligence official who told CNN they found compelling evidence that we, quote, may not be alone. That was a recent interview conducted by a major United States news network regarding and confirming the existence of extraterrestrial or even perhaps other dimensional life and technology, certainly from origins unknown. This has always been contemplated and suspected to be true by many of us and many others, from scholars and skeptics to scientists and astrophysicists alike, insisted that it was all impossible. But now, everything has changed. Technologies that we could only dream of throughout modern history are today a tangible reality, and this will only continue to develop exponentially. Should we reevaluate our history regarding reality as we know it, it seems that the mighty Rod Serling, who created the Twilight Zone TV series in 1959, wasn't just writing fictionist social commentary, but he and countless other brilliant writers of science fiction were all prophets of things to come. Our year 2022 has come to a close, and we've certainly crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Tonight, Off to the Witch celebrates that fine line between fiction and reality with a collection of stories throughout the year. As that borderline evaporates almost entirely, I'll return after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. dimension.
Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight we celebrate life on the precipice of the Twilight Zone. We don't need to escape into fiction anymore, as our reality now embodies all that we've read over the years. What you're about to hear are a collection of highlights from interviews that I conducted on the show throughout 2022. These are only a small collection, as our other episodes are all equally as compelling. My guests are not always, but often people with extraordinary experiences regarding the unknown. Our first interview for tonight aired the week of Halloween and was recorded in a notoriously haunted mansion located in Brooksville, Florida. Bonnie Letourneau is the caretaker at the May Stringer Mansion, and she shared her story of strange happenings at the haunted house. But before you ran into them, what was it about the house that grabbed you? Three weeks after I started here, um, it was a Saturday afternoon and uh, it was closing time. So I sent my nine-year-old daughter upstairs to turn out the lights. And I could hear her sneakers going from room to room, but I heard a second set of footsteps. And these were little shoes going pat, pat, pat. And pretty soon my daughter's sneakers are going a little faster. And the little shoes were going a little faster. And my daughter came flying down the front staircase and looked at me and said, Mama, don't ever make me go anywhere in this house by myself again. Okay. The second set of shoes. So there was absolutely nobody in this house. Right. It was just my daughter and me. For sure. For absolutely. Certain. And I, my daughter said that to me. And I said, um, I heard. I heard footsteps. She goes, never mind that, Mama. There's a little girl on the second floor, and she was grabbing the back of my leg. And that was it. My daughter came because she had to, <laughs> because she was nine. But believe me, as soon as she didn't have to come here anymore, she doesn't come. <laughs> okay, so we've seen scenes like this and read ghost stories throughout the ages. Um, but when you're actually, because I've had a, an experience can you describe what it's like to truly be in that situation, to be here by, well, with your daughter, just you and your daughter in this big old house? And were they, and were they the footsteps of a little girl? Or yes, were they, okay. it was a child. Wow. And she was scampering around on the second floor. And my daughter could actually see her. Um, I don't see spirit. I just feel them, hear them, smell them, talk to them. <laughs> And what was the feeling that you had? Was it a feeling of sadness? Was it... Um... No. Uh, that one was... I was very surprised. <laughs> I had no idea until that moment that there was more going on in the May Stringer house than just a little history. That's amazing. So that was your very first experience right. with the little girl. And it continued from there. And you so signed on to be a, a caretaker after that or a tour guide? Uh, yeah, I'm a member of the Museum Association and I was a volunteer docent tour guide. Um, I also worked at all the major events. We do fundraisers to, because we're nonprofit, we have to continually raise the money to keep the doors open. And so I volunteered at those events. And it was at one event that we were approached to um, have an investigation here. And what year was that? Uh, it was about 2002. Okay, so before 2002, though, there were people that had experiences here. Oh, yes, absolutely. The, the house was rescued from demolition. It, it was condemned in 1979. 
And once the museum association was formed and purchased the property, re uh, restoration began. And it was, the house was in very bad shape. The plaster was off the walls, the porches had fallen off the building. It was, it was an extensive restoration. Well, volunteers, certain volunteers, <laughs> would not come here unless other volunteers were gonna be here because they had already had experiences while they were doing res restoration work. Had you heard any of their stories before you heard the little girl? No. So I knew nothing right. about this, nothing whatsoever. And it, ghost hunting wasn't popular then. There was right. no ghost hunters on TV. So having that first experience was like, okay, maybe I can explain this away. But shortly after that, I had the next experience and it continued. And just before we go there, when you were younger, when you were a girl, had you had any um, psychic experiences, paranormal experiences? Um, I was super afraid of the dark as a young child, and I was convinced that there were shadow people in my room, and I, I had to sleep with the light on or the shadow people would come. That's my earliest recollection. I was maybe four. Yeah, I wonder, you know, children seem to attract a lot of... Well, they have no shields. Sure. They're wide open. So if if there's a monster under your bed or in the closet, there really is, and they can see it. It's it's the grown-ups that have all of the shields, and 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 they've been taught over the years not to believe that reality, especially your first encounter. After that, you get used to it. Um, I can sit here for hours when the museum is open and I can see Dr. Stringer going back and forth from his office to the dining room, which is what he did all his life because he practiced here and the family was on this side and he'd go back and forth between patients. And it's, it upsets other people to see it, but to me, it's part of the fabric of this house. Our next story comes from a man named Paul Richard Price. Some may think he's a bit strange, and his recollection in this interview is certainly the stuff of mad science fiction tales. But considering the recent confirmation of unknown beings from other worlds, Paul's yarn no longer seems so unbelievable. Well, back in 1978, uh, and ours happened before, the Castellandrum incident where uh, two women, and I forget their first names, and, their, and one of the woman's grandsons, I should say grandson, um, were driving down the road, uh, back road in Conroe, and they saw what looked like a triangular-shaped object, or a diamond-shaped object, forgive me. But the uh, thing is, is that it was glowing really bright, and they pulled over to get a better look. And the little boy jumped out of the car. His grandmother went went with him, and the other lady uh, stayed in the car. But they noticed that they were getting burns, and that soon, at, and it was dropping slag or whatever, if I'm correct, off of the vehicle and onto the ground. And that it, the heat was so intense that it started melting the plastic inside their car and the um, tires. 
Wow. And they were taken to the hospital soon after that with radiation poisoning. They sued the U.S. government, and the case got tossed out of the uh, out of court. But my incident, or my family's incident, happened three months prior to that. And we were on our, on our way home from church that night. It was a Sunday night. And it was just that it was not necessarily at uh, evening, but it was at dawn or at dusk, right there, right before it turned evening. And I saw what looked to me originally as a light, a big orb in the sky that I thought was the moon. But then I started looking at it and there were no features. It was just plain white. As soon as I started noticing that and pointing it out to my siblings and my father, the thing started zigzagging back and forth. And then as we were getting closer to, to the house, it, turned, it changed colors from white to a yellowish color, no, to a blue color, to a, yellow, to a yellowish color, and then to a fiery red as it settled about 20... I'd say about 15 to 20 feet above the uh, roof of the um, trailer house we lived in. Well, that's and just- when you were seeing this, were you aware of UFOs at that time? Were you experiencing anything on television or in movies that have already kind of solidified that in your imagination? Uh, that's a good question. And I used to read up on UFOs. I was a big space uh, cadet when I was younger. I wanted to be an astronaut. And, you know, even fringe science uh, interested me. And I uh, knew about UFOs, read books on them. So when this was happening in the heat of the moment, did it occur to you at this point that this was a UFO, this thing that was hovering above your house? Well... Yeah, it did. And then here's another strange part about that. Is that I kept seeing kind of flash visions inside the um, trailer house. Of these little beings. Chasing my family back and forth. Wow, what did they look like? Typical gray aliens. But they, they didn't bother me, but they actually went after my father and my siblings and my stepmother. Why they didn't go after me is <laughs> something I still do, uh, don't have an answer for. You know, I mean, um, they went after ev- uh, everybody else but me. What happened when they approached your family? What were they doing? They were trying to lead my siblings off outside. They'd ran inside the uh, trailer, and then they tried to uh, lure, lure them outside. My dad happened to be outside staring at that thing. And I came inside to, <laughs> because with all the stories I've read about alien abductions, even when I was a kid, you know, the Betty and Barney Hill story and all? Oh, Yes. I then realized I said this is a potential abduction uh, scenario, and I was about roughly about 11 years old, 10 or 11 at that time. And I realized at that point in time, Chris, that 
we may be looking at a potential abduction. You must have been terrified. Honestly, I wasn't. That kind of thing never scared me. But at the time, you know, I'm a meta genius. I um, have had my IQ tested between 163 and 200. So oh boy. I've looked at these things and I had a, I had a uh, background or baseline knowledge uh, as to what was going on. And all I did is I said, I will not fear. I will not cave into my fear. I will go ahead and I will tell them if they try to come after me, uh, basically to get the heck out of out of here and leave me alone. Was your family terrified of what was happening? The ironic part is uh, they don't remember. My dad cannot recollect what, if anything. Their memories were wiped, and I remember it like it was yesterday. So you were 11 years old. This incredible experience uh, was shared amongst you and your family. How, what was the height of the experience? So you're in the trailer house. The ship is hovering above the house. Your father's outside. Family's inside. And now these beings are in with you. What happened next? The thing actually, um, they disappeared. The thing actually flew up uh, vertically and disappeared. I mean, it just shot up and then bam, it was gone. So there was some kind, it, it was a, almost a chaotic situation, no? Because you had all of this activity happening. It, did it feel like time slowed down while all of this? I mean, in your memory, how, how do you see it? You know, because they, you're inside the house. These beings are in with you and they're approaching your family. They were members. shifting in and out of dimensional space. Okay. Okay. I could see him, but it was like a, uh, a ghost image, if you know what I'm talking about. I can imagine. Okay. While they were inter uh, interacting with my siblings and my stepmother and my dad. What were they doing? What were the beings doing with your family? Well, they were trying to drag them outside. But every time I would see them try to drag them out, they would, part of me, simultaneously disappear and then reappear again. Wow. Still trying to take him outside. And it was like I was there, but not there, if you know what I'm talking about. Sure. I mean, would it be the equivalent to almost being uh, sedated in a way or a dreamlike experience? No, I was fully cognizant as to what was going on. But there was shifting uh, in that time, shifting between parallel dimensional space. And did, you, did you understand that was happening when you were 11 or it's, it's looking back in hindsight that now you can identify No, I understood that. that back when I was 11. Oh, okay. Wow. That's amazing. And so the night ends, the ship abruptly disappears. What happened the next day? Or even further in that night, do you remember what happened after? I went to bed and went, 
I went to bed. My brothers and I shared a, or my brother and I shared a bed, and so did my sisters. And um, went to sleep. The next morning, we got up, and and pretty much it was like nothing happened. You know. Did anyone? Did you try to discuss this with anybody in the family the next day, or anyone else? Uh, yeah, I did. Can you tell me about that? My siblings remembered it at the time. They, and they made a comment. They go, "Whatever, uh, what was that big red ball? And how, how old were your siblings at the time? Were they younger or older? Or, or I have both? two older sisters. One was born in 64. The other one was born in 65. I was born in 68. My younger brother was born in 70. And in 72, my youngest sister. So your older sisters were in their teens at that time. Correct. Um, and did they remembered what happened? Well, I know that my sister Teresa remembers, and I do believe Jackie, my oldest sister, remembered. Um, my younger siblings, Robert or Bobby and Melissa, I do not believe that they knew or re- remembered uh, what happened because they, they were quite young at that time, seven and eight. But uh, my dad, strangely enough, doesn't remember what happened. What he believes that it happened? Well, he won't say that it does or doesn't because he doesn't remember. Dave Spinks grew up in rural West Virginia. And as a young boy, he went on an overnight fishing trip with his grandfather. What happened that night was terrifying and unexpected as their campsite was visited by an angry creature only talked about in legendary tales. So you grew up around tangible things. You did things. But around that time when you were a kid, did you have any interest whatsoever in what we call the paranormal or mysteries of the universe? Because I also know, you know, this was the 70s, right? Yes. So in the 70s, were you, did you have an interest? Were you bitten by that bug in the seventies? Oh yeah. You know, I was fascinated as a younger man, at, a younger boy, uh, with the show Land of the Lost with the slee stack and the dinosaurs and these weird pyramids with crystals and they could transport you through dimensions. And of course, as a young man, you really don't get the whole spiel of that. You don't understand all that, but that was fascinating to me that you could go back in time somehow through this accidental uh, earthquake that drops you into uh, the underworld of the earth. And it's like dinosaur times, but in reality, there's portals and everything else in that show. I had two profound experiences as a young man that really literally set me on this course that I'm on today that, that really shaped my life. I would often come back and spend time with my grandparents, both sets of them and my dad and everybody And me and my grandfather would often go on hunting or fishing trips here in West Virginia together. And this happened to be one of those times we went on the Gauley River here in Nicholas County uh, on a fishing trip. And we'd often, we would stay uh, at least a day or two. We'd camp out overnight and just have a great time. And on this particular occasion, uh, we got there, it was late afternoon and we had to set up our gear and everything. And, you know, I was begging begging to get my line in the water and before and he's like well we got to get the firewood and we got to get the tent and he's like but go ahead because you know he knew how excited i was and while he was doing some things around the camp 
I latched onto a really nice trout and um you know it was a big one and I was having problems getting it in and he he came over and helped me get it in there and it was a nice size rainbow and ended up being that um we caught our limit of trout for the day and we actually cleaned them and cooked them up right there at the camp that evening and it was getting uh just a you know a short time before dark probably a half an hour or so before dark uh and in that particular canyon where the river is it's pretty deep the sun sets earlier than normal because it goes behind the mountains and it gets darker quick in the canyon so we had eaten our trout and all the food that we brought you know grandma sent cornbread and and it was just a great evening and we were sitting there so stuffed we couldn't hardly move when out of nowhere this humongous splash hits the water i'm not talking about just some kind of little average fish jumping in the water. I'm talking something with some serious weight uh, hitting the water so much so that it imploded and the water exploded out and made drops come down. Almost like the only way I know how to describe it is remember when we were kids and we jumped off the diving board and we did cannonballs and it, and it goes kaboom and it explodes out and rains down water. That's what it was like in the middle of the river. So in the in that particular stretch of river, the river is probably about 50 to 60 yards across. It's a really good size river. It's really deep in some spots and it runs pretty fast. So we jumped out of our chairs going, what in the world was that? Because we knew it wasn't any kind of fish to make a splash like that. If it was, it would have had to have been the size of a, of a great white shark or an orca or something, you know, something that big. So... We're looking around, trying to figure out, going, what in the world made a splash like that? You know, we're trying to rationally weigh it out. Did a rock roll off the cliff and go in the water and we just didn't hear it or see it? Nah, that doesn't make sense. Did a huge tree branch fall off one of the trees and hit the water? Well, no, that doesn't make sense either because we would have seen the branch floating. So there was no explanation. So after several minutes of trying to figure this out, we just kind of sat down dumbfounded back in our, you know, chairs around the fire. We're like, man, that was so weird. You know, what what could have made a splash that big? And we didn't see anything. So while we were doing this, um, out of my left peripheral vision, I hear something coming through the trees. And then I see this big boulder, like the size of, I can't even compare it. Like a grown man would have a hard time getting both his arms around it. It was that big coming upwards from the other side of the river through the tree limbs and hit out into the water and make another splash. And of course we both saw it then because we heard it clipping tree limbs as it came out in, you know, over through the trees into the, into the river. Then we jump up and we're like, what in the world? And my grandpa immediately yells out, you hoodlums knock it off or we're going to, or I'm going to shoot. I'm not kidding. So in his mind, he's already thinking that people are messing with us from the other side of the river. Well, this these rocks hit out in the middle of the river, number one. Number two, the rocks were so big, there's no way in heck a, a human being could have thrown a rock that big that far. It would have had to have been launched off of some sort of catapult, okay? That's how big these things were. They were, I would say, like the size of maybe eight basketballs put together or something like that, trying to give some kind of comparison on the width and the thickness of these things. And to make a splash that big. So he's yelling over there. And as, as he got done yelling, you knock it off or I'm going to shoot. I'm not kidding. The most guttural, god-awful howling, growling sound came from the woods on that side of the river. 
I mean, and to this day, when whenever I, I almost have like a sort of PTSD from it because it sends shivers from the top of my spine down to my toes when I, you know, when I recall it and it just makes the hair on my arm stand up and everything comes from over there. And I look to my grandpa and he's gone and I look and he's running toward the tent and I know, okay, it's about to get the proverbial crap is about to hit the fan, right? He's going to grab the gun. And I'm standing there as a 13-year-old boy, just scared to death, can't even move. I'm frozen with fear, so to speak, right? And I'm he comes running back, and this thing over there is howling and making the most guttural, weirdest sounds. I've, I've never heard anything like it. And I grew up in the woods, mind you, hunting and fishing, even in New Mexico and here in West Virginia. So he goes over there, and he, um, you know, he stands next to me, and we're on the riverbank, and he... And we all we have is an old squirrel gun that we carry for snakes and such when we're fishing. You know, there's nothing that's going to do any damage, especially at that distance. And he cracks off around over there. Well, the thing goes ballistic then. I mean, he doesn't even know what it is. or We can't see what he took a shot at. So he thinks in his mind, I think, still that it's people. And he would scare him off by pepper, you know, shooting a, shooting a, a squirrel gun with, with squirrel shot in it 70 yards away that wouldn't do anything but pepper something and burn them a little bit, you know, and light them up, but it wouldn't hurt nobody. So that thing starts literally, the, the trees start shaking, it's screaming and yelling over there. And the trees that it's shaking is a, they're like 40, 50, 60 foot saplings. And it's shaking them like it's nothing. Like a human could not even come close to doing that. And I, you know, as this madness is going on, I'm just sitting there shaking. I mean, I'm literally about ready to uh, relieve myself and, you know, in my pants. Seriously, I was shaking. I was scared to death. And he cracks off four or five shots. And as he's doing this, you know, it's a single shot. So he has to shoot around, uh, crack the barrel, take the old shell out, put the new one in and, and, and fire another shot. And every time he does, it gets worse and worse. And he goes, he finally yells at me after firing three or four shots and says, get to the truck, boy. The truck's parked about 20 or 30 yards from us. I run to the front of the bumper. I'm peeking my head around, looking in that direction, and I'm squatting down behind the tire in the front left driver's side quarter panel, just popping my head around, you know, hoping that whatever this monster or whatever is going on doesn't see me. And as he's cracking off round after round, I don't. he must have fired six, seven, eight shots. I don't even know. I didn't, you know. I was too in the moment to even count, but I did hear, I, I distinctly remember the shots going off. And then you could start tracking the movement of whatever this thing was by the tree shakes and the and the brush that it was tearing down literally as it went up and away from us, uh, up the other side of the, the riverbank, which, which is a valley and it's a mountain basically. And it's very rugged over there and people, it's too dangerous for people to even fish on some sides of that, that where that thing was. So as I'm watching this thing, there's a clearing there with just some high like grass, probably, you know, really high grass for people, probably up to my chest as a 13 year old boy. And I see this thing come out into the opening and it's a tall, giant man covered in hair. Never saw its face. It never looked back at us. Um, I just saw it from about the waist up, but it had a little tiny head and it looked like a monkey from behind and massive shoulders that were probably three times as wide or more than my grandfather. And my grandfather was six foot four, 
big man, big man. And this thing would dwarf, it dwarfed him, you know. And this is about 50 yards from us, you know, and I could see it clear as a, clear as a bell, covered in brownish, blackish hair, never looked back at us, and it went up and away. Well, at that time, I look and my grandfather's running, and I knew then that he must have seen it too. So he, he literally grabbed me with one arm, opened the truck driver's side door, and slung me through the cab. And the only thing that stopped me from going completely through the cab was the door was shut on the other side. Otherwise, I would have went. I mean, that's how hard he chucked me into the truck cab. He jumped in the truck and said, that's not of God, son. We're getting out of here. And he fired the truck up and we were peeled out of there, bottoming out. It sounded like the truck was going to fall apart because he was hitting these huge potholes because it's really rugged in there to get down in there. And it's like a three or four mile ride down in there to get where we were on an old, old road, logging road, you know, and it's just full of potholes and big ditches and everything. And I got my head buried in my hands because I, I think, oh, my God, you know, the truck's going to break down and that thing's going to come and kill us. We're going to die out here. I'm just scared to death. Well, after what seemed like an eternity, we finally get up on the hard road and we drive around for like 15, 20 minutes. He's not saying a word. And then he finally just pulls off the side of the road and he looked at me and he said, son, we better not tell no one about this. They're going to think we're crazy. And here he is. He's a Baptist minister and he has a flock that he has to worry about. And, you know, we kind of made a pact right then and there that uh, we wouldn't talk about it. And, and and he refused to talk about it with me, which was really frustrating because to him, that was a demon. And, and, and you don't talk about those things because that brings them closer to you, so to speak. Robin Wind claims to have the ability to not only speak to the dead, but that she is a portal for spirits to temporarily possess her body and speak through her. In this interview, she talks about her preparations for a real seance. So, so tell me from the beginning of the process, how does a seance begin and what are you feeling? Well, a couple days before it's done, um, I, I load in protein and then... Um, I stop eating and I have to just fluids and shakes, protein shakes, soups, things like that to be clear. Um, it is a process of, again, it's detoxing the physical body and getting it ready for a higher purpose and to be able to do that in the best way. I start to play with frequency and vibration with different music. Uh, that reverberates my spirit, that brightens my light, that releases stress or tight any place in my body. Uh, it could be opera, it could be chanting, it could be, you know, crystal bowls, it can be anything ethereal will take me like places that just are amazing. And the closer I get to spirit and becoming more to be able to connect, the less of the physical around me am I aware of. So when I go into a room, someone picks me up and drives me. I have dark sunglasses on even at night. I'm that kind of a diva because my eyes become extremely sensitive to light. And if you look at my eyes after which people have my pupils are just beyond strange looking. But 
I wear the dark shades. I'm led into a room. People have already been instructed. They can't move. There's no sound. They just sit and they listen. And the room is set up for me usually with water and flowers and my a few sacred items of mine that might be present. My native drum might be on the table or a trumpet just for physical things for people to see or bells that spirit can ring if they want or tap on my drum. And it's done in that way. And usually the most people in a sitting, what we've done with years of practice has been close to like 40 or 50 people. Normally, every month when they were done on a regular basis for years, we cut off at 15. And we cut off at 15 because of the work it takes to channel through the physical body a large amount longer than two hours is you get into almost like an unsafe territory. And when you say unsafe, it, it oh, so it, it, you might stay where you are. In other words, is there, I totally detach from me. I, I move to the side and they come in and only my teachers come, the gate is there. And through my teachers and my higher guidance, anything else, when I open that door, Anything else can only come through with the highest and best. And if their energy is less than that, they can't come in. And so in the beginning of it, when when you start to actually feel the spirit come into you, do you black out? Do you lose consciousness? It's kind of a sleep. It's, it, it is kind of asleep. When I was younger and when my kids were little, they would come up to me and they would put their hands across my face and they would go across my eyes because I wouldn't blink. I would just, when I get day visions and it's, it's, that's how it started is the day visions or the night visions. And when I'm connected, then I'm, I'm not aware of the physical body so much at all deep trance, like we're talking about with a seance, that's allowing the loved ones of the sitters, making sure no one that's there is using any kind of drug, drugs or has had alcohol before they come and sit. We always say no spirits before the spirits. You can drink after you're going to need one. <laughs> yeah, we would tell people that. And it is, we have no idea what's going to happen. We have no idea who's going to come through. We don't even know the people who are sitting there. So in the dark, coming and sitting down, allowing in the opening prayer and allowing them to come through, from that point on, Robin leaves the building. She doesn't know what's going on. And my... My sitters, there's four people or four to six people that are my team that will sit in the four directions. And their job is to make sure everyone between them is sitting uncrossed, without their legs crossed, sitting without their arms crossed. And they're sitting in a way that is very sacred, hands up, open, listening not talking at all, just listening. And so my, my crew 
there's one to my left and one to my right, usually that are sitting with me as well. They speak to my channels, my guides, and we bring people in that come for, they'll go next. We have, and the person, this is Robin and Robin says, hello. And then the guide that wants to speak to them speaks to them. And then the loved one that comes through for them brings the message. Sometimes they get touched or tickles, accents, bad ones or good ones. We never really know what's going to happen because they now have access to my channel, my being. But there's no way that a malevolent spirit could jump in during this situation? I think that I've never had that happen, but I would tell you that I know people that have. Has anyone ever feared and panicked during a seance? Obviously, you would learn about it after the fact, but has that ever happened? Mm-hmm. Some higher beings that talk very much like whales. Um, the whales uh, and whales and dolphins, you and I will talk about that as well, but the whales are the record keepers and through the vibration and frequency of them, they send messages to other planets, uh, to other places in the universe. And so their toning that they do is a kind of uh, language. And what was interesting is in some of the different times I've channeled, I've channeled dolphin clicks. I've channeled um, d- whale I speak whale literally, uh, and it's a kind of very weird thing that comes through, but everybody who's sitting in the room is wet. There's a wet or a mist that comes from the energies that come through where it's like standing next to Niagara Falls and feeling the mist of the falls coming out across your face. And we know that's ectoplasm. playing at a theater or drive-in near you. What inspires a person to look into the unknown? Brittany Barbieri spent her entire life exploring the strange and mysterious, and it all started with an encounter when she was a child. 
we had a basement that was what they called like a garden level basement. So the windows were actually half underground and it ran underneath our upstairs um, back porch. Um, and I remember I was down there at like four years old and I was playing and everyone's going to laugh, but I was playing on my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle table because I was a you know, turtle fan. And, uh, and I remember I heard this sound coming from the one window um, on the garden level and I looked up and I remember I locked eyes with this Native American looking man in the window who would have been crouched down basically looking in the window at me. Um, and we had what they called wild men that lived in the mountains, but they never came around homes. They were very private. They had made their own types of homes and shelters out in the mountains and they just wanted to live off the land. And this was not that at all. Um, and I remember I screamed and I screamed and I closed my eyes. And when I opened my eyes, he was gone. And my sisters ran down, thought something horrible had happened to me. And I explained what had happened. And they thought I was crazy and I had an overactive imagination. And my parents thought there was somebody outside and freaked out and there was nobody there. And it kind of became the story of, you know, the time that, you know, little B saw something out the window and it's probably just her imagination. But then just as I continued to grow up, more and more things started to happen around me. And it was always a sense that I was, you know, it sounds silly, but it was like, you're always meant for something more and you just don't know what that more is. But I always felt that my more was going to be involved in the world of the paranormal. And Did anyone else in the family see the gentleman that you saw in the window? No, it was just me. And had they at that time experienced anything, you know, because you grew up in this fantastic family environment where I'm sure some ghost stories were being told, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, so you, yeah. So as a primer to what you were about to experience, and I and I ask this of everybody who's, because that's a fantastic image in my mind of you in the basement, and then you see this gentleman at the window, and then he disappears, essentially. Mm -hmm. But you have this environment. And there are ghost stories being told. Were you at all exposed to any horror films or did you read Stephen King at that time or even like Scooby-Doo where there were ghosts in it? Was there anything that kind of primed you for, wow, that's a ghost at the window? No. Like for my age, my mom and dad always kept the girls away from like horror movies or scary things. It was always like the boys that were in it because I had four older brothers and two older sisters. So my brothers would watch that stuff, obviously. I mean, there was a 12 years age gap between me and my oldest brother. And for me, they were so protective over me because I was the baby of the family. So I was never exposed to anything like that or knew anything about ghosts or anything. Like even after this account, I wasn't until I was like probably seven or eight did I actually have like an actual conversation with my mom about ghosts. And, and her experiences and, you know, things like that. But outside of that, it was always just like, well, you never know. Things are weird, you know, and they just kept it very vague for me. Were you scared when you saw him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was like stranger danger. You know, here I am, this little four-year-old. I've got my little 90s on with my little house coat. I'm just playing with my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle table and putting pepperonis on my pizza and... I see this. And I was familiar with my brother's friends who would like try and sneak in the windows um, at night in the basement <laughs> coming in late. And 
that, that this was none of them. Like this was, I could still, if you were to ask me to have a face drawn of this, this man that I saw, I, I could detail it in extreme detail. We're talking like half of the head shaved, like coal black hair with like half of a mohawk down the center. Uh, he had two feathers that ran down by his ear, his huge high cheekbones, like very chiseled like features. And like the eyes were like so so dark in color, but also so white around the actual pupil of the eye of just pure shock that I saw him. Like we locked eyes and I just screamed. And I just remember like the hands and arms were like placed down at the window and on his, what would have been his left arm, like up by the bicep was this beautiful beaded, looked like a bracelet, but like an arm bracelet, like way up high. And it was like turquoise beading and, and brown leather beading. Like, and I could see extreme detail of him. And it, it scared me to know in because for me, it's like stranger danger. There's somebody I do not know at the window and I'm alone in the basement because my sisters ran up to go get drinks and snacks so we could watch a movie. And I, I just freaked out. But he wasn't in modern Native American man clothes. He was in a traditional dress, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like shirtless. From, from the time like, before, yeah. Yeah, like, like from what I could see from how – he was, which was weird to me that like, he was like squat. Like now I look back as an adult trying to analyze what I saw. And it's still very odd to me that he was actually crouched in the window is it for me now versus then I always looked at it. Like, you know, when everybody's like, we'll go surreal and things happen and who knows, you know? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then as I get older, I'm like, Whoa, this is weird to me. Like it almost seemed like he, came across the house and the house was never there at whenever time he had been there. And he was curious and like saw lights on and was like peeking in the window to like, what is this place? Almost like our, our, um, which I'm a huge believer in is like time-lapse. And I, it, I ended up it now looking back almost gives me the vibe that our, our times overlapped and we weren't supposed to be in his time and he wasn't supposed to be in ours. And it was kind of like that weird moment that we shared, if that makes sense. So that's how I look at it now versus that actually being like a spirit, like crouching down a window, <laughs> like, Hey little girl, <laughs> how are you? And that's interesting. And that's something I'm, I'm, I'm trying to um, dive into in terms of perspective, because it seems like almost the eternal perspective is when you see an apparition or something like that, that it immediately your mind gives closure by saying this is the spirit of a dead or deceased human being, right? But in this case, you're you're looking back in hindsight and you're wondering perhaps if it's something else, if we're we have these kind of converging timelines or overlapping timelines, is that what you think a lot of ghost experiences are? I yeah, I do. I, I, from a lot of the investigations I've done, especially when I've had to spend multiple weeks at a location, I have really come to believe that some locations, because I've, I've dove into this research in multiple different ways, even looking at geology to figure out the types of stones and what energy sources they create and so forth. And so with that in mind, over the years, I have come to believe that there are many areas that hold so much frequency of energy that it almost breaks away the veil from the past to the present. And there are just certain things that amplify it. And I think that there's a crossover that happens in these locations. So I think a lot of these accounts in these really 
what seems active where they talk about how, oh my gosh, they saw me and they were scared. Well, why would a ghost be scared? You know, this doesn't make sense to me um, unless it was somebody that felt they were having a ghostly experience because they were both very much alive at the same time having this experience together. So I just think it's a crossover. It's a weird explanation, but it is scientific. There is proof of this. Sure. Yeah, it almost might make more sense. Okay, wait. So I have to rewind back for a second before I get to the next, this question that was on the tip of my tongue. Um, so after that encounter, mm-hmm. was there another and what was the next encounter? Um, I used to have random encounters in my bedroom. So my bedroom had two closets in it um, because I shared it at the time with my sister, my older one of my older sisters. Um, so this one room, I don't know why, but this one particular bedroom had two closets. So when my sister moved out, moved to the basement where we had multiple bedrooms, um, this was a mountain home in Colorado. So it had multiple levels, of course, because we had seven kids. So we needed the space. Um, but my, had asked my dad, could you in the one closet convert it to a bed so that I could have like really cool like curtains and like sleep in the, in the wall. I always thought that was the coolest thing. But I was always the kid that had to sleep with my back to a wall. Um, My feet could never come out of my sheets. I had to be facing every entrance and exit of my room. Um, I had to be against something solid because I was afraid something was going to touch me in the night. Like I always had these superstitions and these fears as a very little kid. And they came very natural to me. So I had a very set regimen to go to bed with. And half the time I ended up on my floor in my parents' room because I was like, I I can't do this. Like I'm I'm terrified something's in here. and it, it started to really seem to increase when I'd be in my room. And when I was really small, I used to just say, it's my imagination. I'm going back to bed. But sometimes I just couldn't ignore it. And there were times I would like hear people in my room or I might see a shadow in my room that I know was not my mom because I'd peek through and all you could see was literally just a shadow. Um, I would see objects in my room move and that was it. Like I, I wouldn't even stay. I would just get up and take off and go run upstairs to my parents' room like and just lay there. And when I was really small, of course, you'd curl in bed with mom and dad where you feel safe, like when you're like five or six. Um, but I, I did what, you know, when I started to get older, I was like, okay, you got to zone this out. You got to have more control over this, you know? And then finally I just kept blocking myself off from it because I didn't want to see these shadow things anymore and didn't want to, you know, I just didn't want, I was scared and I told myself it was just my imagination. But I look back now and go, I don't think it was not knowing how sensitive I am to things around me. I, I don't believe it was. So this raises yeah. a good question that I've been thinking about for even in recent times, because I it's almost like you're describing my experience as a kid too. Do you think that level of fear that just comes at night for a lot of children isn't just because they're afraid of the dark? That's the traditional explanation. Um, you know, you have a head full of whatever you were watching earlier in the day. I watched horror films constantly as a kid. So they blamed <laughs> it on that when I, when I was scared, they're like, you like these movies, but you can't sleep on our floor anymore. You know, like they were right. telling <laughs> yeah, Exactly. But is it that children are re- receptive to something else? Is it that they're sensitive to other energies? And I think a lot of the time, nobody takes that into consideration, but maybe now, as we're talking and other people are saying, well, maybe I was so frightened because there was something there. I, I believe that now more than ever. I think a lot of the programming that was taught to us as children that was taught to our parents and their parents and so forth of what we are supposed to feel and what's okay and what's belief to be real and what isn't. I think a lot of it isn't accurate in a sense. Um, I think it's, 
it's programming to close us off. So we're not open and aware of what's really going on around us in different dimensions or in the energy space around us constantly. And that's my personal opinion. Um, just because looking back, I think as a child, and I've talked to people that do agree with this as a child, and I think you would too, we, we don't, we're not at a space, everything is black and white as a child. If it's there, it's there. It's really there. There's no reason to, you know, have this whole elaborate story or have our imagination. Do I think our imagination goes a little wild? Well, sure. We're kids. We're having fun. We play make-believe, but it's not about being scared of the dark anymore. It's about if you really hear something and I've, I've grown to see this because of my son. My son is extremely sensitive and very aware of things that is beyond his age. Um, and he's, you know, he, I just know that as a child, we're more open and susceptible and we're not closed off at all. So I think that we do see these things. We do hear these things. We are more open and aware but as we get older, we're told that it's not that we need to close it off. And so we do. But I think if we were as open as we were as a children, like as a child, we would actually probably still see, hear and feel everything we did as a child. And it's not necessarily just being afraid of the dark. Do you think staying open in that sense could be dangerous for some people? Um, I don't think so. I, I don't I don't believe that. I don't think that it would be harmful to us. I think if we actually had a better understanding, I know people that actually still to this day like to ground themselves to the earth and they will go out just barefoot in into the grass and meditate because they want to be more open to the world around them and to feel the energy of the world around them. And I think that these are the things that we lack and forget from a very young age. You're put in shoes. You don't feel the earth underneath you. You don't feel, you know, the the soil in your toes as you're growing up and making the, you know, the pads of your feet raw from being out outside all the time. And I did. I mean, my God, what was a pair of shoes when you were a kid? Sometimes what is seemingly a beautiful location to spend the night in nature might hold its own dark secrets. N.K. Kronda is a woman who experienced something disturbing, perhaps from another world, one night when she was camping alone in a national park. Yeah, I went ahead and drove out of town because I had gone completely stir crazy. Um, I didn't have enough money for a hotel or anything and I just wanted to be out. I didn't care that it was 30 degrees in my car. I was, I was getting out as fast as I could. So I went to one of my favorite state run parks and it was a, it was a day that was quiet. There weren't that many campers there and I had set up my, uh, privacy blankets and everything in my van. And I was going to just go ahead and crash in my van for the night in the parking lot of a particular trail that I loved. And I was sitting there and everything went fine the first night. And these woods just have a, a feeling to them that I knew that this is not a place that you go night hiking. It's, it's not a, it's not a location that we ever want to research. It's, it's a place where I'm welcome during the day, but at night I need to stay where human beings are meant to stay. And I went hiking all throughout the day. I went all over the park. It's overrun with a lot of granite, which they say is uh, something that holds a lot of energy. There's a lot of running water there. It's a deeply wooded area. And I was just extremely distressed all day and I couldn't get the particular problem off my mind. So I was just chewing on it and chewing on it and trying to move my body and then kind of have my subconscious work through it somehow. It ended up being a very frustrating, unproductive day. 
and I ended up back in my car. I had gone to town for groceries. And this was Sunday night by then, so there's no other cars in the parking lot. There's nobody camping. There's no kids that are doing night hikes. It's just me. And there are absolutely no lights near me at all. I'm not near any sort of um, other campers. I, I had essentially isolated myself within about a quarter mile of all other people without realizing it, which I'm never going to do again. And uh, I heard someone start screaming. And in horror, like you and I know, there's a difference between someone screaming because they're startled by something. And there's a difference between what we like to call a blood curdling scream. And it's much worse than people imagine. And it's much worse than we can capture in the movies. And it's just a woman screaming with every inch of her stomach and her diaphragm and her throat because she thinks she's going to die. So someone started screaming, help me. And I had a pistol with me and I immediately shot up because what the hell was that? Um, I couldn't get a good look at anything. It was starting to get very dark. I didn't have a flashlight. I wasn't wearing my glasses. I was seriously just ready to go to bed. So I opened the door and I stepped out of the van with my pistol and I was trying to figure out where the noise was coming from. And I'm in a serious dilemma here of fight or flight is that I don't know if I should run in after her. I don't know if I should not run in. There's no service on my cell phone. I'm not wearing any shoes. What am I going to do if I find her? And then again, she starts screaming even louder. And I'm like, is it a bobcat? Is it some kids messing around? And the very specific words, stop and help me came out. And I'm like, okay, that's not, that's not a bobcat. That's not what they sound like. And just this increasing amount of dread. And I knew that I couldn't run in after her. And I heard that voice just getting farther and farther away, like they were dragging her or they were carrying her. So the only thing that I could think of to do was say, you know what, I'm going to be as loud as possible. I, I hope to God that a ranger would hear me. I shot a shot in the air. I heard her still screaming and I shot two or three more shots in the air from my nine millimeter. And um, I stopped and for whatever reason, I don't know, I looked to my left and about 40, 50 yards away is the mouth of the trail. And the only reason I can see it is because there's very, very light colored sand against the darkness. And there's something fucking standing there. <laughs> and we stare at each other for a very long minute and it rushes me fast. And I don't, I don't know how my van door got closed. I don't know if it was closed. I got in my car. I got the hell out of there. I drove to a ranger station and I just sat in my car and I was shaking. I couldn't move. I couldn't get out. And a ranger pulled up next to me and he said, is there anything wrong? Can I help you? And I essentially told him what happened, that I heard a woman screaming down at this parking lot of this particular trail, which is a pretty specific place for them to go look. And he just said, okay, in the most cavalier tone, didn't, didn't ask me any further questions and just drove away into the night. And I decided to hell with this and I left the park and I didn't stop driving until I left the immediate area. I called a friend and they, uh, I talked to them today. They verified that I wasn't in a state of mania. I wasn't in a state of shock. I was calm. I was relating all of the details that my story didn't change and they didn't think that I had any type of mental lapse. It's just something terrifying that I saw in the woods. And 
after I had gone through the research community about it and talked to my friends, the most terrifying part is that we discovered it was most likely a lure and that it wasn't a woman really screaming at all. Someone just wanted me to walk into those woods. Someone. Or something. Is there is there anything, any other stories around that particular area, looking back in hindsight, that you could say, okay, other people have had experiences there, there were murders there, anything like that? It's an area that's really deeply soaked in... Um, Texas history with them fighting over territory with the native populations. So what do you believe you encountered that night? That was something that was trying to lure me out, whatever was screaming. What I thought was interesting is that if you actually split my perspectives, the thing that appeared could be completely different because correlation doesn't mean causation. That thing got me to leave the area, whereas the other thing was trying to draw me closer into the area and farther and farther away from the safety of my car. And if I had stayed any longer, I would have kept shooting, which means that I would have just lost all of my bullets. Um, I don't know. Krista Brown works in the medical field and was also in the military. Her secret for many years is that she is a practitioner of witchcraft. In this interview, she explains the science behind spellcasting. You know, if you if you break it down, witchcraft is the applied science of energies and you know life force of of traditionally plants and animals. You know, energy cannot be created or destroyed; it only changes forms, and that comes from Newtonian physics. And I think when you have a common goal and you have the energies in concert and they are resonant and they are powerful and you have visualized the desired end state, that's key. Witchcraft and magic is all about the visualization. It's all about if you can envision it, you can create it on the physical plane. Um, if you can put all those things together, in, in addition with proper timing, the right phase of the moon, the conjunction of planets, if you can draw all of this together at the same time, raise the energy, visualize the desired end state, bring it to almost a, a, a height, a crescendo of unsurpassed measurement, and you project that out into the universe. All of that energy that you have created from, you know, drawing it up from the earth from dancing, from chanting, from, you know, pulling all of this together and then sending it out, it's going to hit its direct target. It is. It's like a missile and it's got eyes on it and it knows where it's going. And when you, when you do this, you do it to, to inform it of its purpose and you tell it, this is what you want to have happen. And if there's enough resonant energy sent in the same direction at the same time, big things happen. Big right. things happen. And there are consequences too. So in other words, if let's say if the ritual or the spell or the intention behind it is disingenuous or wrong, let's say wrong, you know, um, if it's malicious, 
right? There's really no justification for it. There were other alternatives. That would somehow come back on the person. Do you believe that in a negative way? I, I, I do. I do. And there's a lot of discussion amongst witches and, and Wiccans and magical practitioners about what's called the tenfold law or the threefold law, which is basically if you send out an energy, you're likely to get that back, you know, orders of magnitude more. And if that's a positive thing, that's great. If you're helping somebody, you are loading up your karmic bank of good things and that will pay dividends in your favor. Okay. But if you are maliciously going after somebody, no matter for what end, for what purpose, you know, I was doing this for a friend of mine who was being viciously abused by her domestic partner. And I was going to bat for her. Sure. Do, let me ask you but a question. Um, that, that, I... that ultimately would come back and it would, it would be a problem. Sure. Right. And, and, and another question I have is how does, and, and, and it's, it's kind of a complicated one. So give me a second on this. So how you have spells, which are a catalyst, right? But I think people in general can tap into these energies. Sometimes they don't even know it with hate anger, I wish, I wish is kind of the same thing with less um, calculation and understanding behind it. So in other words, let's say someone wishes the death of someone on a daily basis. They focus their energy and hate on that person. Wouldn't that be the equivalent of a disingenuous spell, a death spell or whatever, where it's not in self-defense, it's not a protection spell. No one's really doing anything to you that bad and you focus your hate and you focus your hate. Doesn't the universe kind of pay it in the same way? Does that work the same way or, or is it just because you did a spell? You're always going to get back, I believe, that what you put out. And if you are perseverating, if you are always focused on hateful, negative, maligning energies or intent towards somebody else, that's, that's a terrible thing. You know, that's, that's only going to damn you, you know, and, and whether, whether it becomes, uh, you know, damaging to you physically or damaging to you mentally, something's going to happen. And I, I don't really know if that answers your question or not. Um, it does, because I, I was always curious. It's like, how does the the world or the clockwork of the universe recognize when you're doing a spell or not? I mean, like, they're very ritualistic things to thought. Sure. Um, you know, you can sit and just focus your energy on something. I think even people who um, have done spells for a long time, they've described the advanced state of being able to cast is literally thought, you know? It is. It's, it's literally a thought form. It is taking something from the ethereal plane and giving it life on the physical. Intention is everything. The universe works in a straight line, okay? If there's something that you want, that you are asking of the universe, you will get it, but you will get it in the shortest, most direct line possible, okay? If you are 
wanting a windfall of money. And that's what you ask of the universe. You'll get your money, but you'll get it because you'll lose an aunt or an uncle or another family member who dies in the process. So you've gained something, but you've lost something. You may ask to, you know, I really want to lose weight for such and such a purpose. Okay. But if, if you are not specific to that intention, if you cannot speak clearly what it is that you're after, you might lose the weight, but maybe because you developed, I don't know, necrotizing fasciitis or you're in a car crash and you literally lose a part of your body because that's no way to lose weight. Uh, you know, so you, you have to be very specific with your intention. Point one. And point two is you have to understand your motivation. And this, this brings it back around to the introspection, the shadow work, the dark energy, because if you are not acquainted with the true motivation of what it is that you're doing, if you're not honest with yourself and you start, you know, throwing energy out willy nilly, hopeful that, you know, something bad will befall somebody else. Or, or, you know, even if you're doing something for somebody's benefit, because, you know, you really want to see so-and-so succeed, but deep down you are green with jealousy. The universe is going to recognize that and it's going to come for you and say, yeah, you were, you were, you know, playing like you wanted so-and-so to, you know, be prosperous and, you know, become wildly successful. But we understand your heart is not that genuine. And, um, yeah, we're now going to punish you for lying. So intent is everything and focus of energy is everything. And being true to yourself and being honest. It's fine if you're honest and you're going, I really hate that person. And I really want to see them fail disastrously so. If that's really what you're feeling inside, then you're being honest. It's probably not the best game to play. But you're probably going to be successful in, in your spell work. There are two things that, that I think are the most powerful carriers, carrier waves for, for successful spell, love and hate. You know, but you have, to, you have to understand the reasons behind what it is you seek, first of all. James Dean was a brilliant actor who died far too young in a tragic accident. But another famous actor had a premonition of Dean's fate only a week previous, as author Lee Raskin recalls in this interview. And to set the record straight, uh, matter of fact, uh, I have, you know, I have a section, a little sidebar that I used often that's called fact versus fiction. Sure. And it's a good, good comparison, and this is a perfect comparison uh, in that situation. But the curse. There, there are a lot of stories that feed this idea, one of which reversing back just before or a day or two before the race. Can you tell the story about how James Dean talked to somebody at a restaurant, actually a famous actor? Yeah. So I've been asked over and over and, and recently, it, this is the thrust of the curse. Just after James Dean purchased the spider on September 21st, 1955. He met his best friend, Lou Bracker, 
for dinner at their favorite restaurant called the Villa Capri in North Hollywood. And while they were having dinner, Lou Bracker, who grew up in that area, was familiar with celebrities, grew up in, you know, with, uh, you know, with the wealthy Hollywood culture. He said to James Dean, look, there's Alec Guinness. Now, Alec Guinness was not well known, not well known enough to win an Academy Award at that point, but well known as a British actor. And he had a date, and they were trying to get a reservation at the Villa Capri, but they were basically sold out. And so James Dean, and they walked away, Alec Guinness and his date, and James Dean bolted out of the, out of the, uh, from the table or the booth, wherever they were, and went after him down the driveway. And he approached Alec Guinness, he introduced himself, I'm James Dean. And I'm not sure that Alec Guinness knew who James Dean was, but James Dean knew who Alec Guinness was. And he said, I saw that you wanted to be seated, but, you know, it's uh, crowded in there. But why don't you come and sit with us? We have plenty of room. So Alec Guinness agreed. He thought that was splendid. And at the same time, uh, his date agreed. And they went back and they had dinner together. And in the course of dinner, James Dean said, there's something I want to show you. I have a brand new Porsche Spider. It's out in the parking lot. So they went outside, James Dean and Alec Guinness, and James Dean showed him the car. And Alec Guinness got a little nervous and upset. And he said to James Dean, essentially, you know, there's something about this car that is unsettling. And if you get in this car, and drive it, you'll be dead this time next next week. And James Dean sort of laughed at him, figuring, well, this guy's not a motorhead. He doesn't know anything about cars, doesn't know anything about racing. And who was he to tell me that I'm going to die in this car? So they went back to the restaurant, and there was conversation, and Lou Bracker has basically said, yeah, that's how the conversation was, that James Dean was, you know, a little taken back by this, taken aback. And Alec Guinness related the story, and Lou Bracker said, well, James Dean just sort of short, short, shook it off. He shook it off because he just figured, well, he doesn't know anything about cars, and he's knowing about me. I think... And Alec Guinness knew exactly what he was saying, and I believe that Alec Guinness may have been clairvoyant. Joe Stewart claims to have seen a Bigfoot for the first time when he was a child. His life following was dedicated to finding evidence of the elusive and legendary creature that he knows is real. The following contains an example in the form of a recording that Joe claims to be of a Bigfoot screaming in the night through the United States and they're also here in Michigan in concentrations in the further north so it was just more um, 
I'm trying to think. I think it was probably about 20, 2010 or 2011, uh, we had we were working a case that was in, in uh, mid-Michigan, and it was some Bigfoot activity was uh, near a, um, it was a dairy farm. And I had gotten some recordings from that, and we've got a lot of uh, footprints in the, of that nature. But again, I never actually saw anything at that point, but there was, the, the vocalizations was, was quite, quite dramatic from what we picked up on. So you picked up on some recordings of, what is it, a howling, a screaming? Well, I actually, uh, I, I I have some clips of it, like uh, less than a minute. They're like 60 seconds. And oh, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to place it here. Uh, so I guess here I'll create a space for it. So um, for the, for the, if you could send those to me and I'll do it in post. Uh, so here's the, the recording that Joe, uh, or here's a sample of the recording that Joe made out in the wilderness uh, that is what Joe claims to be a Bigfoot. Well, it's a good example where, because they, they do have a tendency where they act um, very uh, much like apes, and then there's times they act very human. They're very intelligent. And this recording, you'll hear, if you listen very carefully, you'll hear breakage of uh, branches and the kind of things that apes do when they do displaying. And then you'll hear them make an actual vocalizations back and forth. There was, I don't know, about three of them in there, if I remember right. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that, that it's very rare. You do catch them on audio. I've heard them before in the wilderness, but not necessarily that I got anything running that would you, cause you don't know when it's going to happen. So I, I just never had anything running that would, uh, would have caught it. Um, what do you think then, they are, you know, just in your opinion, after all these years, what, what do you think a Sasquatch is? Well, from all the research I've done, um, and evolution and things of that nature, I'm coming to the conclusion, uh, you're aware of the Giganopithecus blackie? 
Yeah, you know, I've read up on that. Of course, it existed, and and it was right. a long time ago. But yeah, yeah, it disappeared from the fossil record about three hundred thousand years ago, and it also is uh, tied to the orangutan. They are actually sister clades uh, in the evolutionary uh, tree. So, um, and and if you get some of the pictures that I have of it, uh, you know, I've got like pictures of the arm in front of cameras and that it looks so much like an orangutan. It isn't funny. So I'm thinking that it is the Gigantopithecus, but it didn't disappear that it actually evolved into what we have today. What is it like to grow up in the house of the devil? Stanton LaVey was only a child when he lived with his grandfather, the creator of modern Satanism, Anton LaVey. Here he recalls a bizarre encounter with the unknown and the infamous Black House just after an earthquake. Unfortunately, Stanton passed away unexpectedly and suddenly only a week ago. His two-part episode was a reflection of his life and his plans for the future. I'm grateful that he shared his story with us. And here's just a sample of that interview. I'm, I'm very much a believer in the mystic and the metaphysical uh, aspects of reality. Um, I've had far too many uh, of what one might call supernatural experiences that defy uh, scientific reality, at least in terms of uh, what is commonly believed. And, um, and there's no way to unexperience these things. Uh, I'm not going to go into them right now. I don't think this is the, the time for them, but, but, um, just one example, because it ties into my relationship with Anton. Um, my first major, uh, experience with the spirit realm was when I was, um, uh, I was a little boy. I think I was maybe four years old. Um, I couldn't sleep. I was having a difficult time sleeping and I had just managed to fall asleep when my door, the door to my bedroom swung open and, and in the doorway was a figure, a, a large male figure with a wide brimmed hat filling up uh, the, the bulk of the doorway, a silhouette, a uh, silhouetted figure. And it just wavered there. It didn't move forward or back. And it just stood there wavering with the light from the, the dim light from the hallway behind it. And there was no mistaking it for what it was. I could make it out clear, very clearly. And I was wide awake and it startled me to the point that I fell off my bed and I asked it what it wanted. I asked it who it was and it wouldn't answer. And then I demanded that it go away and it closed my door and immediately upon my door closing, there was an earthquake, uh, a, a large enough earthquake that it woke my family up and my grandmother came running to my room from across the hallway where I had seen this thing and my mother from around the corner and my grandfather even came up the steps to check on us. And this is what uh, signified to me that it wasn't my grandfather standing in the doorway, which was my first sort of skeptical approach to it, that it might've been my grandfather. Um, of course, when the earthquake happened, I immediately knew that it wasn't my grandfather. And then when Anton began coming up the steps, I knew for certain that it hadn't been Anton. Um, 
and I approached Anton about it the next day, and uh, and he didn't have an explanation for it, and he felt, and I could tell that he was frustrated with the fact that he didn't have an explanation for it. Um, he said that it must have been something that was meant just for me to experience alone, uh, and that that this apparition must have uh, had must have been signaling something, or it meant something symbolically um, that was for me to understand and me alone. And uh, but it but the earthquake did happen, and and it happened immediately when my door was closed. Um, and that's not something that I take lightly. That's that's a serious experience. Um, and I've had other experiences that that parallel it in ways where it, it, it ties into reality in such a way that it can't be refuted. And um, and with witnesses, uh, you know, more even more so when there's been times when I've experienced things with people present to witness things happening. Um, there's no getting away from it uh, or denying it. What I usually do at the end of every episode is that, and again, whatever answer is right, so don't worry about it. But I ask if you, when you're ready and you're conscious, when you leave this physical realm, what would you take with you? I would probably say the, all the love that I've experienced and all of the love and all of the love that I have, the love that I have for those who and those who I love and the love that I've received from those who love me is uh, definitely what I would put in my suitcase. <laughs> Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you all for listening to and supporting Off to the Witch. I have so much in the works for next year and the years to come. They include motion pictures, documentaries, books, and other art forms all related to the strange universe that is Off to the Witch. I hope you join us for all of the above, and until next year, try to enjoy the daylight.